Joe, the king of the workers of the world. Hi, folks. Joe's the king because he can buy more with his wages than any other worker on the globe. Arise, ye workers from your slumber. Arise, ye prisoners of want. That's right. For reason in revolt now thunder. Chains of hatred, greed, and fear. <laughs> Hello, I'm Kirk Kernut. And I'm Robert Trogdon. And welcome to our third episode of... Master of the Forty. This is a podcast devoted to the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Special Fitzgerald Fans of the World Unite Edition. Greetings, comrade. <laughs> so today we drew as our third story. I think we both got very excited when we drew Mayday. And tell us why this is, uh, this is an exciting story for us to talk about. This is a very well-constructed novella, and it's it's really much longer than than a typical short story. But it's also it's written uh, May nineteen twenty. It's very much a, a story that covers what at the time were contemporary events. But for me, the excitement is that it's Fitzgerald branching out and trying a new form of writing as opposed to some of the stories that he had been working on in 1919 and those that were collected into uh, Flappers and Philosophers. I think if you ask anybody who's at all familiar with Fitzgerald stories, this one is, this one is definitely top 10 of all time, uh, greatest hits. Definitely. Uh, quite likely top five. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say that I actually like this story and think it's more historically important than Babylon Revisited. Mm. Uh, it's, it's t- that's a tough one. I think Babylon Revisited is, is an important personal story for Fitzgerald as far as the in the context of Zelda's uh, illness and, and Fitzgerald's reaction to it. When I say historically important, I think because of the events that it deals with and the way that th- the sort of incidents that drive the story have, have largely been forgotten to history, maybe I better put it in a little more timelier way. In a time in which we're not allowed to travel stories about expatriation to Paris. They're hard for me to read right now because I'm thinking back just to a little more than a year ago where I was in Paris leading folks around. But on the flip side, when we have a story about a riot and a story that's dealing with politics, maybe not overtly, but that's the subtext, this story becomes very relevant to us in ways that it might not have been a year and a half ago or so when the 100th anniversary of the incident first happened. But um, what do you like about this story? I like that Fitzgerald is taking some of the standard tropes that he's he's going to have in this side of paradise and some of the debutante stories and the college dance stories and things of that nature. And he upends them. I mean, it's it's we're really dealing here with Fitzgerald as naturalist and naturalistic writer. And you have to think of sort of like Fitzgerald as Theodore Dreiser, not Jack London, not Stephen Crane, 
but not Frank Norris, but in that ilk. And it's always, uh, I think, interesting to, to note how he played with genre, how he played with different types of, of writing, and that he was very adept at all of them. And the other thing about it is that I'm a history buff. A lot of my teaching is, is sort of in literature is a historicist and sort of putting things in historical context. And this story, just you look at the accounts of what happened in New York and on May 1st, 1919, and it's, it's almost like law and order ripped from the headlines, this story. He gets it right. I mean, that's the that's the the amazing thing about it, and it's also the also this. I have this perverse interest in Fitzgerald's idea of himself as a socialist. It's, a, it's almost mind-boggling in some ways because we have somebody who's sort of stereotyped as the uh, the poet of the silk shirt or whatever, and and he he positioned himself as a leftist he did he very much did amory blaine at the end of this side of paradise when he's arguing with uh with the father of his dead classmate about socialism and and the coming you know workers revolution it makes some sense when you look at his his background as you know always cast himself as the poor boy in the rich uh, the rich boys school you know always the poorest member of his class wherever he happened to be so i think in part of this it was a very genuine feeling to alleviate suffering and whatnot but he he's just not he can't be max eastman he can't be right you know bunny wilson he can't be john steinbeck he he can't be any of you know any of those those people but he's he's fascinated by revolution as well and he's fascinated by sort of the socialist view and i think part of him also looks at what happened in 1919 with the with the palmer raids and the mass deportation of of socialist to communist and anarchist from the united states and looks at it and is a bit appalled by sort of this this throwing out of uh due process for these political um, radicals. You've thrown out a lot of great things, so let's take them a little bit at a time. Let's start with the historical context and what the story is about, and then we'll come back to this genre of naturalism, because that's really probably the best way to understand literary-wise as opposed to historically what he's doing. The title of the story refers to a holiday that we think of in America as Labor Day, but is celebrated May 1st throughout most of Europe. So tell us real quick, what is May Day, Robert? May Day is sort of a, a labor socialist event. Uh, and it's sort of very much left leaning. As, as you mentioned, it's much, much bigger in Europe. In 1919, it comes about after World War One, after sort of the, the, the problems or the suppression of civil liberties in some cases in the United States and in other countries. And they're just riots all across the, all across the country, all across Europe. I mean, there's a huge riots in Paris uh, on May day in 1919, huge riot, you know, the huge riot in, in New York, Cleveland, Ohio. I'm about 45 minutes South of Cleveland right now. Uh, many, uh, they pulled out machine guns and, and shot into the crowd. What sparked the riots? Because May Day had started in 1889. So 
There's a 30-year tradition of May Day parades and May Day celebrations already in America. It got started in part because about three years after that, what's called the Haymarket Affair that happened in Chicago, where police fired on workers who were protesting. But And May Day was largely responsible for getting us the eight-hour workday. That was a lot of what the protests um, were about. But by this period of time, really, it's really a working-class celebration. And again, I think in America, the best way to think of what May Day represents for the rest of the world is simply Labor Day. It's an acknowledgement of work. But what happens in 1919 that in particular sparks rioting? You have too many soldiers on the streets. They, you know, the the war is over. They are being demobilized. A lot of them are just, you know, roaming. Soldiers take a very reactionary view to what uh, individuals on the left and uh, socialist newspapers and socialist speakers are trying to do. The impetus in New York primarily was a large labor meeting at Madison Square Garden, where there was uh, a big mass meeting to protest the imprisonment of a, of a labor leader, Mooney. And these crowds of soldiers were marching on Madison Square Garden. It's not the Madison Square Garden we have now that's been rebuilt several times. But they were going to go in and break it up because it was, you know, and it, a lot of it is that it's just too many young men who had like nothing else to do and no direction. And they, I think they were fired up by this, this whole patriotic fervor of you know, that these socialists and, and communists were anti-American. When the soldiers came home, and this comes out a little bit in Gatsby, there, the, the immediate effect of the end of the war was a recession. So the unemployment spiked and inflation was going up. So you had a lot of people that could not get jobs. And as you say, that resulted in a lot of uh, sort of pent-up frustrations, a lot of pent-up energies. You know, we are only year and a half less than two years, I think, after the Bolshevik Revolution. And there was a lot of anxiety about what exactly the rise of the Communist Party in, in Eastern Europe meant. I mean, it's kind of very interesting to talk about this story in the context of the past three months, because there was a lot of anarchist terrorism going on. Anarchists were sending mail bombs to political leaders. Well, they, they even sent one to the home of the Attorney General Palmer. Right, right. The bomb was on his front porch and or front steps and went off. And one of his neighbors, like the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, came over to calm him down and like help. No one was injured, but the one of the favorite facts I love about this is Palmer then unleashed this young man from the Justice Department uh, who ran the Bureau of Investigations named J. Edgar Hoover. And this is how J. Edgar Hoover gets his start. It's only a few months after these riots that the Palmer raids begin in early 1920. I just finished a book on uh, labor history in the United States, and it's incredibly violent, especially in this period. Uh, like you say, bombs are going through the mail, bombs being planted, there was a large bombing on Wall Street, and this was this was typical. I mean, this was 
uh, we think of now, we think of what's going on now as being maybe violent, but it, it pales in comparison to what was going on 100 years ago. So you have basically a political clash going on between the left and the right. And a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the soldiers were running through the streets, beating up people in these in these parades in New York City in particular you had a guy named Louis Kulke who was a Liberty Bond salesman essentially and he was leading a protest and he was he was kind of the the force that got all the soldiers headed over to a to a newspaper called the New York Call and this is what Fitzgerald is basing the story upon is this whole incident where a mob of about 100 people rushed into the offices and roughed everybody out, threw them out the building. One guy had to jump out of a window to, to not get beaten up. And there was a real fear of mob violence. Not unlike the issues surrounding this group, the Boogaloo Boys or the the sort of shooting that happened in Kenosha, law enforcement was siding with the forces on the right. And there was a very deliberate rounding up of anybody who would be considered left-leaning or in the, in the socialist. The leader of the Socialist Party at this time was Eugene, Eugene Debs, and he was in prison in Atlanta when the May Day riots occurred. And historically, it's important for Fitzgerald because as he'll write later in Echoes of the Jazz Age, he claims that the Jazz Age began on May 1st, 1919, with the unleashing of these energies. That whole background is peculiar because a huge chunk of this story is about upper-class privileged college graduates. Mm -hmm. If we were doing a proletariat novel, we'd be in there organizing with the members of the Socialist Party. It's it's almost like, and, and this is the strangest analogy I had for this for this novella, it's the love, actually, of Fitzgerald stories because you, you have all of these separate characters and, and then they, they connect in some way. We have the, the Key and Rose and Rose's brother happens to be the head waiter at the dance where Edith and, and Gordon and Phil are. And Edith's brother, Henry, is the editor of The Trumpet. And so she goes to see him. And that's the last time I will compare Fitzgerald to what I think is an abysmal movie. And now, now we'll get letters about my hatred of love, actually. <laughs> uh, well, that's the aspect I love of the story, too. I love the panoramic mm -hmm. aspect. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned that this is a novella, and I think there's always been a, he called it a novelette, but there's always been a struggle to sort of define exactly what genre we should fit this story into. I think to me what's fascinating is that the way that the city itself, New York City, becomes a kind of character in the story. And that notion of the intersection of different classes ties it a lot to urban fiction. Um, and the way that these intersections in historically established bases, I mean, just uh, if we think about the places, the settings in which these scenes occur, they're, um, you know, they're very traditional Fitzgerald settings, but they're also uh, real. It wasn't like he was inventing a city like we saw in Lees of Happiness. So part of this story takes place at the Commodore Hotel, 
which the Fitzgeralds were in the process of being thrown, <laughs> thrown out of as he's, <laughs> as he's writing the story. Uh, part of it takes place at the Biltmore. Uh, you have two restaurants, I think, that, are, that it's kind of funny that are the core settings of, the, of these. And two very different restaurants. Right. Uh, Child's, uh, and, which is kind of like the Denny's of, of the 1920s. <laughs> I, I was, uh, it, it's a chain restaurant. Yes. Started in, in the late 1880s. I was, I was going to go a little higher and say it was the Olive Garden of the time. Okay. <laughs> Just because if you rewrote the story today and you had a scene of a riot taking place outside of, of Olive Garden, I love the idea that people would be beating the crap out of each other with endless breadsticks. <laughs> Well, just that's true. I was thinking more of the uh, it's four o'clock in the morning and you've been drinking all that's night right. and you yep. need like you, you you need like a big fat laden breakfast to, to yeah. fight off the hangover. So if this were the southern story, it take place at the Waffle House. Uh, oh, yes. Or IHOP. Yeah. But yeah, Child's was a chain restaurant. And but there were the other place is called Delmonico's, which is. A very fancy. It was probably the probably the chicest restaurant in New York at the time. And it was almost a hundred years old, um, and and uh, you know it was a it was a space that was much. Uh, you know, if anybody could get into Childs, not everybody could get into Delmonico's. Right, right, uh, and but yeah, just the 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 idea of opulence and wealth. I mean, the Commodore of the Biltmore all associated with the Vanderbilt family, which right. is, you know, one of the wealthiest families in the United States. And then Delmonico's, you're just, that is, that invokes almost like Edith Wharton's New York of the 1870s and 80s with, you know, turtle soup and all the, all of the trimmings. <laughs> I think that's an important connection to make because what we see in this story and and if we think of Fitzgerald saying this event kicks off the jazz age, what we're really talking about is the end of the Gilded Age. Right. And all the 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 upper class characters, all of these graduates out of um, you know two or three years out of Yale that are getting together for a, they're kind of coming back as a, a aimless but wealthy adults coming back to this fraternity get together um you know they're second generation robber baron kids in a lot of ways and they're the sort of the decadent ne'er-do-well this is the generation that's going to squander all the wealth of their parents and grandparents so it captures kind of the um the last last gasp of the gilded age and the directionlessness of of the rich well that's especially phil phil dean uh as sort of the directionless and he doesn't necessarily need a direction because it seems like he's got enough money but he is there's no indication that he has a job wants a job is probably going to go into the family business at some point when he grows up a little, when more. he grows up a little more and you know, the, and eventually we see him like drunk, you know, as Mr. Mr. In or Mr. Out. I can never remember exactly if he's Mr. I in. He's, I think he's Mr. In. Yeah. And, right. and Pete, 
pee to the the unfortunate date of Edith as Mr. Out and and who is um, you know very much a wastrel, and then you get Gordon, who is our tragic protagonist, who is the who is coming to cage money off of Dean. Kind of an image of Fitzgerald himself in 1919. His projection of what he feared he might become. Well, yeah, and but you know, if you're talking about a naturalist story here, this is you know Gordon who was like, I can be an artist if I had some training. He he is a weak character. I mean, he he falls in with Jewel, who's d- described as being over over maked up made up and things like that very much lower class she's kind of our sister carrie character uh, yeah without sister carrie's ambition <laughs> or maybe a maybe a myrtle wilson from great gatsby that's a good one yeah she she wound up in like in a filling station in the middle <laughs> middle of the valley of ashes um what i love so much is how fitzgerald gets the dynamics right between gordon and phil early on and especially Phil dragging him to Rivers River Brothers, yeah, which is Brooks Brothers, uh, and it's a, the point to famously note that Fitzgerald had his U.S. Army uniform from uh, designed and, and made at Brooks Brothers, didn't he? Uh, yes, he did. And Brooks Brothers, which didn't they just go bankrupt this year? They just went ba- bankrupt in the pandemic. You know, so Gordon is there to to borrow money from Phil. They knew each other in college and they were friends and whatnot. And Phil doesn't want to give him money. You know, finally gives him five bucks. Cause Phil's on an allowance. Yeah. I mean, he talks about when, uh, when Gordon, Gordon Starrett visits him at the, um, at the Biltmore and he says, look, you know, my, I, I don't have that much money. My family's got me on this tight influence. And, you know, you, you don't understand how difficult it is to have fun on, on, <laughs> on an allowance. Fun on allowance staying at the Biltmore, which is not Motel 6 by any stretch of the imagination, but he's economizing. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, the, and, you know, the, the, uh, the very loving way that he goes to Rivers Brothers to pick out his cellulo- celluloid co- collars and things of that nature. There's a lot of consumerism that the story is satirizing in that way. You have the scene of them shopping, and then later on, Edith has this whole conversation with her brother about her stockings and whether those are too frilly. So you have a real clash of energies here. You know, Edmund Wilson has this great piece about after after the war, all of the energy that went into producing armament then went into making clothing and designing and consumer goods. And I think you you experience a bit of that in the story and the way Fitzgerald lavishes on all of these consumer items that uh, these rich people are shopping for. You get that in the preface, which is before the story proper starts with all of the, the uh, never had there been such splendor in the great city for the victorious war had brought plenty in its train and the merchants had flocked thither from the south and west with their households to taste of all the luscious feast and witness the lavish entertainments prepared and to buy for their women furs against the next winter and bags of gold mesh and very cl- colored slippers of silk and silver and rose satin and cloth of gold. So you get this, this, you know, 
totally, you know, we're not talking about food or, you know, anything practical, but the bags of gold mesh. We talked about with Lees of Happiness how a lot of these early stories, Fitzgerald opens with these introductions that are totally superfluous to a story. I mean, we said that you could cut the opening of Lees of Happiness and it'd be perfectly fine. Same with Four Fists. Uh, a couple other stories, but you know, this, this, and I like how you said a preamble, because I think that that opening of the story is absolutely essential to the, to the theme or the meaning of it. I mean, it is like, if you were making this a film, you would have a montage um, in whatever the contemporary version of Technicolor is, you know, very saturated, <laughs> saturated <laughs> hues and everything, taking it just a little bit over the top. It's a Boz Lerman tra- treatment. There you like go. Lerman did for Gatsby. He should make this into a movie. It would be perfect for his Moulin Rouge type of overstatement. But it is an explosion of color, and it's meant to dramatize how the minute the war ended, there was this whole veil that was lifted, at least in terms of advertising and in terms of goods and being sold that that was supposed to prime the economy the problem was you know again we went into a recession so there was a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots suddenly against the wealthy this very privileged group of audiences we also have these scenes of the mob and they're uh, sort of embodied by two soldiers that Fitzgerald's treatment of is is entirely unsympathetic to right Rose and Key and there's the joke in Key's name that that Fitzgerald makes as sort of alludes to because uh, Private Key is a descendant of Francis Scott Key and of course Fitzgerald's uh, it's Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald's because there's the connection between Fitzgerald and and uh, the writer of the Star Spangled Banner. The further irony of this, and it's it's again interesting to talk about it in in terms of what we see as the reaction on the street to riots today with the uh, sort of armed militias showing up is the way that Fitzgerald portrays these um, two soldiers. And and I want to read this description of uh, Key and Gus Rose and then talk a little bit about some of the dog whistles that are in this passage. This is right at the start of the third section. There's 11 sections to this story. And so this is the start of the third one. This is when the two soldiers are introduced. They're wandering around New York in their, in their uniforms. The taller of the two, now they would have been out of the army a couple months by now. So this is, they're wearing their uniforms mm-hmm. as, a, as a sort of marker of identity because that's who they are. That's all they have. The taller of the two is named Carol Key, a name hinting that in his veins, however thinly diluted by generations of degeneration, ran blood of some potentiality. But one could stare endlessly at the long, chinless face, the dull, watery eyes, and the high cheekbones without finding a suggestion of either ancestral worth or native resourcefulness. His companion was swart and bandy-legged with rat eyes and a much broken hooked nose. His defiant air was obviously a pretense, a weapon of protection, borrowed from the world of snarl and snap, of physical bluff and physical menace in which he had always lived. That term rat eyes was an anti-Semitic 
caricature. And and hook nose as well. Hook nose, exactly. So th- it's very interesting that he's ethnically stereotyping at least one of these soldiers and, and equating the mob menace with a group of people that we would more likely, I think, think of as being on the side of the socialists or of, of not being part of the mob, of being the victims of the mob. So he's kind of projecting on there some of his own, uh, some of his own ethnic prejudices. And the, this portrayal of, of Rose is often seen as a sort of precursor to what he does with uh, his two most infamous Jewish characters, one of which is in The Beautiful and Damned, the movie producer, Joseph Black, who tries to assimilate into wasp culture, and uh, more famously, Meyer Wolfsheim in uh, The Great Gatsby, who's just the, you know, the image of the um, Jewish gangster. Right. It's, you do have the first uh, order that they meet is described as a little Jew, but the other socialist, uh, Brandon and Bartholomew for the trumpet, are not. Right. So it's, you know, that, you know, Fitzgerald could have probably said his name was Gus Rose, knee uh, Rosenkowski or something like th- like that if he wanted to get it uh, clearer but yeah. he doesn't he doesn't necessarily have to get it clearer right uh, and, right there and you mentioned the the other Jewish um, person in the story who's described as long beard and kind of again stereotypically marked as Jewish um they beat the crap out of him. I mean, right. there's a whole mob that's basically just taking turns as he's standing on the corner asking, what did the war get you? And the a crowd surrounds him and they take turns punching him uh, in, 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 even when he's on the ground. And and that sort of violence is pretty atypical of Fitch, of Fitzgerald. We don't see a lot of of that and it's a, a lot of the time it takes place sort of off stage it's it's right. described or, or reported the uh, dick divers beating and and uh rome and tender as the night is the only thing that really sort of springs to mind here where it occurs in fitzgerald this story being about a riot asked to be read in the tradition of other American novels that, that feature riot scenes. And um, so on a spectrum, we're not as bizarre as the day of a locust, <laughs> which yeah. Oh God. <laughs> for those who don't remember sort of culminates in a riot in, <laughs> in which a child actor get, I mean, the end of the novel is a child actor getting stomped on by a character named Homer Simpson. <laughs> yes. Homer's Homer Simpson going ballistic on a, uh, a proto Bart type figure. We, we have to say, I have to say here, if you've not read day of the locust or Nathaniel West, that you, you really bar. need to. I mean, it's he's amazing, and he died on his way to Fitzgerald's funeral, didn't he? Exactly. Yes, they were uh, they were killed the same day. Uh, mm-hmm. He was uh, west in a car wreck, I believe. Right. Um, let me ask you this: Who's your favorite character in the story? I like Edith. I I I love Edith, and I love her. I love her interaction with with uh, Gordon, and. And the way that uh, you know he, they're old. He's an old flame. Uh, he crashes the party in order to see her. I mean, and she she is the typical 
Fitzgerald debutante at the time. So she's got all these people cutting in on her dances and things like that. And, uh, you know, at one point she's, you know, she's there and um, this is in section four and um, she was 22 uh, the first dance, the first of its kind since the war was reminding her with an accelerating rhythm of it with associations of something else, of another dance and another man, a man for whom her feelings had been a little more than sad-eyed adolescent mooniness. Edith Brandon was falling in love with the recollection of Gordon Starrett. Edith is the one fully realized character in the story, the one that draws our sympathies in part because everybody else is a pseudo caricature. And she is Fitzgerald's type of female heroine. She is not too far removed from Daisy Buchanan. She's very similar to the to the heroine of the uh, of a popular girl, the popular girl. And one of the things that I think we don't maybe recognize is when he's writing about young women in these stories, he really is pointing out the limitations that they faced in life, even even if they were upper middle class or wealthy. Um, it's a way in which he does connect, I think, with Edith Wharton, because what he talks about is that these these young women in in their uh, teens and early 20s really had nowhere to go once once the party circuit was done i mean they could go into marriage but that pretty much limited them to the to the domestic sphere and you get a sense i think a great a great searching in characters like edith or lois in benediction which is another great story where they want to be involved in politics they want to be involved in life and things in work and and they have nowhere to go and uh, the great scene and uh, to me one of the best conversations in this is she goes to visit her brother Henry who's the managing editor of the New York trumpet and they have this wonderful conversation where she basically says to him you've got this you know this movement that you are pushing for and what do I have? You must think I'm frivolous. And all Henry can say to her is, well, you know, you're young. Have fun while you can. And not even in the socialist movement is there a real place for a young woman like Edith. No, I mean, it's it's uh, girls from Harrisburg is, is where the, they're from originally. And uh, I guess the, the suggestion there sort of is their father is somehow involved in steel or something, but uh, Henry has gone off to college and read Marx and been indoctrinated, as they everyone believes that college professors do. Is is you know that's right. He had one of the one of the famous lefty college professors. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm sure he was, he was in Comrade Trogdon's yeah, class. Exactly. Uh, the only Marx I teach is Groucho. So there you go. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that she has necessarily is the choice of the man that she will marry, and she she has to make the right choice for that, because if she was lower class, if she was, um, and the, the only two women you really get in this are, are her and Jewel, and Jewel right. is is quite clearly out, 
you know, the predator trying to get the rich boy and get him, you know, marry him. There's a slight hint in the story that Jewel might be pregnant, but it's kind of implied. But she is uh, blackmailing Gordon Starrett to marry her. Well, at the very least, they've had some sort of uh, sexual relationship right. i mean then of course that's the the whole thing is and i always have to explain this to my students when i'm teaching fitzgerald and he's talking about making love that he's not talking about sexual intercourse he's talking about something else yeah yeah because there is a there is a description in there with uh, edith where she talks about she'd been kissed twice before midnight and made love to six times and you know if you're if you don't know the meaning of that word it it seems a little uh, bizarre but she Fitzgerald does depict her as being intelligent and does depict her of having like uh, certain skills that most of the other characters lack and she she is able to balance all of these men's attention and she's very clear-eyed when Gordon approaches her at the dance and talks to her and he's like and she realizes that the image that she had of him, the idea, the recollection is not what the reality is anymore. Right. Her distaste was growing. She barely nodded this time, waiting for her first possible cue to rise. And then the great passage at the end of part four, love is fragile, she was thinking, but perhaps the pieces are saved, the thing that hovered on lips that might have been said, the new love words, the tenderness learned are treasured up for the next lover. Yeah, she's gone from Gordon at this point, you know. And that's a great passage. It it reminds us that um, even though he's writing in uh, the genre of naturalism, which is not known for stylistic indulgence or pretty writing, that he's doing a lot of pretty writing. Um, let's let's talk about naturalism a little bit um, because when I mentioned that most of these characters were kind of quasi-caricatures. That was kind of what I was hinting at. And so uh, what, I mean, I have a hard time figuring out sometimes what naturalism really is. Can you give us a definition just real quick? Well, naturalism is kind of, is always described as hyper-realism. And if you look at it in its 19th century beginnings, um, it really takes on social Darwinism as dealing with uh, types that there is no control that the characters have over their fates. It is merely it's uh, randomness that however fit you are is not, you know, is no guarantee of success whatsoever. And that characters are often driven by sort of base animalistic desires and sometimes are punished for it and sometimes thrive, but there's no rhyme or reason necessarily for it. Um, so the examples like the open boat where the very fittest character in the crane story ends up dying at the end and the, the character who is maimed makes it on shore and, and dies with dies within reach of the shore this is to preview our next po- podcast which will be on the short stories of stephen crane that'd be a great podcast actually <laughs> that's a lot of <laughs> i would have to read more <laughs> stephen I would crane, too, but, unfortunately you know the modernist work that this actually reminds me of 
because it's very typical in, or excuse me, naturalist work. It's very typical in naturalism to have these kind of weird, um, I almost think of them as vaudeville duos. You know, we have in this story, we have a rich, a, a rich uh, team with Dean and Himmel. And then we have their sort of opposites with Key and Rose. And, um, also, you know, it, it sort of reminds me too of the Killers uh, Hemingway mm -hmm. story, where you have the two the two guys. But very typically in naturalism, you have these these two pairs that uh, you know that that banter back and forth, and usually there's some sort of degeneration going on. I was I always think of McTeague when I read mm -hmm. these uh, read these stories with McTeague, McTeague the the dentist, and who's the other guy? I always teach the story where that that McTeague came out of springtime fantasy, mm. and I I can't remember the guy's name, but you know they basically beat each other up until their wives get into a fight one day, and they realize it's much more entertaining to watch their wives beat up each other up, and that's the 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 cement of their friendship. Right. It's uh, Norris has also just uh, quick aside the best endings. Uh, the best character deaths of any any writer um, with McTeague being uh, handcuffed to a dead man in the middle of the desert and the guy in um, the octopus drowning in wheat. Um, right. right. The, those are, 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 are great. But yeah, it's the, the strain of naturalism. It doesn't end when in the 1920s, because we have like Theodore Dreiser, who's bet, I think the an American tragedy. American tragedy came out in 1925, the same year as The Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. And and the story of Garrett, uh, you know, aspiring upper class young man who dallies with a working class girl, could have very easily become American right. tragedy because I I'm a, I in fact I remember very vividly, first time I read. Um, probably high school, maybe early college, Red May Day, I kept thinking, okay, this dude is going to kill this working class woman because she is trying to bribe him into a, a relationship. And that's essentially the storyline of an American tragedy, which, by the way, was what the number two or three, four best-selling novel of 1925. It was, it was tremendous. I mean, it was, uh, it was right up there. Yeah, um, it's it's unfortunate nobody reads it today because it really is a sort of interesting study of class and and social climbing, but also just of the way that environment degrades us and and pushes us into making those uh, very violent reactions. Well, it's it's you know, and of course the the ending of it with Gordon killing himself. And we talked we before we started. We were talking about the revisions of this this story, but between its uh, smart set appearance and and book form, but it's quite clear that that Gordon, uh, well, very clear. He put you know fired a car cartridge into his head behind his temple after he finds himself married to Jewel and and leaves and goes off. I, I want to talk just briefly about the fact that this is a smart set story. Yeah, and this is like H.L. Mencken's magazine, and 
it's typical, the sort of the standard idea is that stories that Fitzgerald could not place in the Saturday Evening Post or uh, Ladies Home Journal or, or any of the other sort of mainstream magazines that pay, paid better wound up in this with H.L. Mencken. This is an, a story that H.L. Mencken would love. Yeah, because he he's very much attracted to sort of the naturalistic and criticizing America genre of story. In fact, it's generally presumed that Fitzgerald got his naturalism in an effort to please Mencken. Fitzgerald began publishing stories in the Smart Set, which is the, probably the second most famous magazine Fitzgerald was associated with after Saturday Evening Post, only about six or seven months before this story was written. Smart Set's a fascinating magazine to look at. We should mention to folks that you can find the entire run of the Smart Set online. There is a great website called Modernist Journals. They've got the entire run of the Smart Set. It's, it's modjourn, M-O-D-J-O-U-R-N. Smartset has a, a very bizarre history because it, start, it, it was in existence from roughly 1900 to 1930. It was a casualty of the Depression. But it started out as a magazine aimed at what they called the top 400 or the high 400, the, the most elite New Yorkers. And it was started by this guy named Colonel William Mann, who's most famous for starting the magazine Town Topics, which has a very direct Gatsby connection. Town title, yeah. So Colonel Mann starts Town Topics in 1879. By the turn of the century, it's basically become a kind of extortionist uh, gossip column. What he would do is he would go around to people and say, "I've, I've heard this gossip about you and if you don't want it to appear in print, you're going to need to uh, buy some subscriptions to, uh, to the magazine. And there's a famous case in 1905 where he tries to set up Emily Post's husband, Edwin, and uh, one of his lieutenants is arrested in a New York City restroom, and it becomes a big cause celeb, very embarrassing for Colonel Mann. And um, although the smart set has a pretty good subscription rate around this time, like 165,000, mm-hmm. yeah. that court case pretty much tanks both magazines. I mean, they lasted, Town Topics lasted until the late 1930s, but n- not at all the same sort of influence. Still, he had pretty good success with the smart set when he sold it in 1910, 1911. He sold it for $100,000. The guy who ran it for a while, he turned around and he hired a guy at Minkin's advice named Willard Huntington Wright to be the editor. And Wright is most famous for 15 years later reinventing himself as S.S. Van Dyne, the mystery writer. Ooh. And Philo uh, Vance, exactly created the private detective Philo Vance. Um, and it, without him, we would never have the great Ogden Nash lyric Philo Vance deserves a kick in the pants. <laughs> but Wright was only there a year, but he he was responsible for bringing in a lot of experimental writers like Ezra Pound and D.H. Lawrence. So the smart set garnered a reputation after Man's era as being not a little magazine 
but not a mass market magazine either. It had a pretty good subscriber list of, you know, 50,000, but it was very expensive for the time. It ran for, it was 35 cents a copy, but it was a conduit for a lot of what we would think of as modernist writers to get their earliest earliest publications. It was Fitzgerald's first mass market magazine publication. Edna St. Vincent Millay was in these pages. Dashiell Hammett gets his first publication in there. So a lot of that has to do with the way that Wright reinvented the magazine. He was fired in 1914 and then they offered it to H.L. Mencken who was their book reviewer at the time. And he and another guy named George G. Nathan took it over. And they ran it up until 1923. It's really that period of time that we think of as being the the high point of the smart set. I was trying to think of contemporary magazine that would be comparable to the smart set today. And I I almost said Vanity Fair, but Vanity Fair existed at this time. It's it's a little more Vanity Fair than Vanity Fair. The New Yorker, maybe, but the New Yorker started in 25, but but that was very focused on New York. And the, the New Yorker took a lot of its inspiration from the smart set. I'm thinking of maybe publications that people outside of New York aren't even familiar with, like the Gothamist or something like this. I mean, ones that are very, that we would think of as being very hip, very elite in attitude, not consumerist elite. Paris Review. Yeah. Uh, back in the 60s and 70s, yep. yeah. A place where the intelligentsia, the cognoscentia might meet. And um, it, it's really a fascinating magazine to look at. Looking at the issue that this story appears in, in July 1920, I can tell you that I recognize absolutely no other names of contributors except this guy named John uh, John F. V. Weaver, who's I guess was a poet in that era and an essayist who kind of floats up in some Fitzgerald con- correspondence from time to time. But that was the only other name. But they were very they they published a lot of the modernists. So they would be considered a midway magazine between the little magazines, which were niche publications and mass market magazines. But Mencken's influence over Fitzgerald, Mm. it it was tremendous at this period of time. Um, People say that The Beautiful and Damned was largely written under his influence. And part of the reason that that maybe that novel doesn't succeed very well is that his, his temperament just wasn't suited to naturalism. To me, naturalism has some natural drawbacks. I I don't enjoy it as much as I do either modernism or the type of romanticism that Fitzgerald was was naturally drawn to. We, we've been talking about this as a naturalistic story, and I always want to say it's a quasi-naturalistic. It has naturalistic elements, but it's not wholly a naturalistic story because for one thing naturalism typically works well when the focus is wholly on on lower class characters uh, characters who are trapped by circumstance and obviously gordon is trapped by circumstance and and you know weakness on his own part uh, that has sort of led him to be trapped by jewel and to like have lost money Rose and Key are obviously trapped in some way uh, because of their their being born lower class. 
and although the characters are treated in a naturalistic way, it's not all the way naturalistic. You know, characters do succeed. Um, Edith does succeed. I mean, she succeeds in pointing out Rose to the police for breaking her brother's leg. And stylistically, I find, I mean, you mentioned Dreiser. He, to me, he is not a poet by any means. Um, neither was Nora. Stephen Crane, now he was, you know, if you read Red Badge of Courage, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, that has some beautifully poetic passages. But if we think of Fitzgerald's main strength is of being a stylist, of being somebody that can sort of elevate us in, through, uh, through evocations of mood and color, that was absolutely antithetical to everything the naturalists believed in. I mean, they were not for frilly, they were not for pretty writing. And so I think even in the story where we have these long passages that you've read some of them that are devoted to um, portraying the scene or portraying consumer goods, most most card-carrying naturalists would reject that kind of stuff. And, you know, Mencken is probably most famous for discovering Fitzgerald, at least in terms of when we think of him in the Fitzgerald word. Yes. He's second most famous for absolutely getting the great Gatsby wrong. I mean, he, 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 he may be the only person on record who ever said Fitzgerald should go back to writing better books like this side of paradise than the great Gatsby. And that's true. You mentioned uh, Dreiser as a stylist. I remember Minkin's review of an American tragedy where he spends half of the review just lambasting Dreiser for his pedestrian prose style and how badly he wrote and things of that nature. And then the second half got talking about what a wonderful book this was because it really exposed what is wrong with American society. And the Gatsby review would have been the same year. Uh, And he just gets it wrong. He famously called Gatsby a glorified anecdote. Right. And just totally, I mean, it's really one of the most misbegotten reviews ever. But, you know, Mencken's a fascinating figure. Um, I think his whole approach to literature was to be the loudest person in the room. And, you know, he's uh, outside of Fitzgerald studies, he's famous for coining the phrase the Buboisi to refer the, you know, the class of boobs out there that are supposed to be the, 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 the middle class and um, totally just defecated all over the South. Well, it's, it's responsible. His Sahara of the Beaux-Arts is responsible for launching the, uh, the fugitive poet movement in Vanderbilt, which launches the career of Robert Penn Warren yeah. and Alan Tate and John Crow Ransom. In that essay, the Sahara of the Beaux already basically says the whole South can be written off. It's a cultural wasteland. And the irony of ironies is that he ended up marrying a woman from Montgomery, Alabama named Sarah Hart. And they had a, they had a very good marriage for the few years that they were together before she died. So I think he, um, you know, he, he was, I mean, this is a guy that produced a series called prejudices and that was his, his sort of approach to literature was it was a, you know, it was a bare knuckle brawl. So all of the sort of romanticism that we like to think of uh, with Fitzgerald, just totally, he had no interest in. I think, yeah, the, the, 
person that I th- I think of as sort of carrying on uh, into the twenties and thirties, the naturalist is Das Passos. Mm-hmm. And of course this is before Hemingway would have met and known uh, John Das Passos. Uh, but, um, and that is somebody who's much more interested in politics than, than Fitzgerald was, uh, and was focused more on, on, um, social and political movements than Fitzgerald was as well. I think West in some ways was also a naturalist. I mean, he, you know, he tended to, there's an interesting connection between naturalism and kind of the hard boiled or noir. That's the other, one of the other things Mencken was famous for is they financed the smart set by publishing pulp magazines. They started out with one called the Parisian, which they basically all the, all the short stories that they got that they wouldn't put in the smart set, they shuffled off to this other magazine and it helped finance finance the smart set. The most famous pulp magazine that they did was Black Mask, which is the most famous um, crime magazine. Launched the careers of of Hammett and 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 later Raymond Chandler. Um, but they they got rid of it sort of before the heyday of it of it being. Uh, associated with uh, crime fiction, but they were responsible for making it that type of venue that that would create uh, the American detective fiction. I think also we should mention here our uh, friend David Earle has a wonderful book on on pulp modernism yeah. and modernist and sort of and not in the little magazines of Paris or Alfred A. Cannot for some of these publishing houses, but how things like the Parisian and Black Mask, you know, sort of got modernism to the masses of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's they they were conduits for channeling and it's all a part of mood or temperament. I mean, as the era got grimmer, these eras got grimmer, you know, the fiction got got darker and and um frankly more violent. I mean, that's a lot of what a lot of what naturalism brought into um brought into the literary realm was a ways of making violence uh acceptably literary. And again, that's that you know, you just don't see a whole lot of violence in Fitzgerald. I mean, even the riot scenes I think in this one are kind of pre- portrayed you know, sort of as slapstick comedy. I mean, we have, you know, the scene where they raid the New York trumpet, the lights go out and you hear the clattering and the boom and the bam. You really could see it as a Marx Brothers scene, you know, and or a Three Stooges scene. And the next thing you know, you hear a scream and and um, one of the soldiers falls out the window. The key falls out the window and, and uh, the soldier, tall soldier with the weak chin, right. he's not even given the name there. And it's just accidental, and he's he's taking part in this riot that he does he doesn't know why he's fighting. Yeah, he doesn't know why he's rioting. He's just he's part of the mass. And Henry says to his sister, "So the human race has come a long way, but most of us are throwbacks. The soldiers don't know what they want or what they hate or what they like. They're used to acting in large bodies, and they seem to have to make demonstrations. So it happens to be against us." You know this this individual who's working for the uplift of the of the of of human beings and the uplift of the classes has a very dim view of the masses. What he's trying to help. 
Just uh, just last week, there was a great article by one of our society members, Sarah Churchwell, in the New York Review of Books, talking about how we misunderstand Fitzgerald. It's the title of it is called The Oracle of Our Unease. And back in January and February, we were making a lot of noise online in the society about celebrating the Roaring Twenties. And, and I think she was wanted to remind people that Fitzgerald you know, as much as he reveled in the 20s, he saw it as a as a kind of signature of cultural neuroses. And, you know, Fitzgerald speaks of that very clearly in Echoes of the Jazz Age, the essay he published in 1931. But she ends her essay with a long discussion of May Day and talking about how these um, sorts of forces of energy, partly anger, projected onto patriotism, projected against immigrants, projected against African-Americans. And one of the things we haven't noted is that directly out of the May Day riots came a series of race riots, not really even fair to call them race riots. They were a series of white supremacist attacks on black communities known collectively as Red Summer. And those went all the way uh, up through the rest of 1920. And, uh, you know, the most famous one took place, I think, uh, almost two years later in Tulsa with the Tulsa massacre that that has gotten a lot of uh, attention recently. So a lot of this energy of violence, I think Fitzgerald sees that as kind of endemic to to this new modern society that's coming about in which classes are the the social classes are clashing together on the streets of these uh, uh, metropolises and there's a lot of connections you can make between May Day and Tender as the Night even though they take place worlds away a lot of the Paris scenes that are in Tender as the Night uh, channel a lot of the same energies. He doesn't give us those working class characters, but he has, you know, uh, a woman shooting a man in the in the subway station uh, there in there in Paris. So it's it's a lot about the the forces of of anger being unleashed in society. And if that doesn't make May Day very contemporary, I don't know what does. No, that's uh, it's the the 1920s. We have this nice view of it as big parties and bathtub gin and and people doing the charleston and flagpole sitting and things like that you had the largest membership per capita in the ku klux klan in the united states than any other period in the of history you you go to the newspapers and they're covering klan rallies mainstream newspapers are positive about the ku klux klan uh, and how they're doing wonderful things, keeping blacks and Catholics and, and Jews and immigrants in their place. Uh, you, you get uh, Warren G. Harding, who runs for president in 1920 for a return to normalcy uh, after this international intervention in, in World War I. Um, you, it's a very schizophrenic time, um, yeah. very conservative on one uh politically and religiously but then also you have these people who are drinking the bathtub gin are running off to and this is why so many uh writers ran off to paris because 
it's a more open society there than it is in the United yeah. States. Less, less hypocritical. Uh, I, you know, I didn't realize this until I was doing a little more uh, background reading, but I did not realize that Mencken and George D. Nathan lost control of the smart set in 1923. They ended up giving it up because they published, a, they were going to publish a satire of the death of Warren G. Harding. Oh, wow. And, and the, the printer saw it and called the publisher and said, do you know what? you know what these guys are about to do to you? And the publisher just went ballistic on them. And they said, well, you know, if you're not going to do it, we're, we're just going to leave the magazine. That was after nine years. But, you know, we're in an era in which the, the Society for the, su the Suppression of Vice is raiding bookstores and uh, taking away objectionable material. And people who are protesting, which is kind of the core energy of democracy, are getting sued for being sedition. Uh, um, one of the, probably the most famous person arrested in the May Day riots of 1919 in Boston, it wasn't in New York, was a guy named um, William James Sidis. Uh, and he was famous for graduating from Harvard at the age of 15. He inspired the character of Horace Tarbox in Fitzgerald's story, Head and Shoulders, which we'll talk about at some point. Mm. He, he, was a, he was a relatively well-known person, but his life was essentially ruined by being um, you know, arrested during these May Day riots and put in jail. His father got him out of jail, but um, it was, he was on a downhill trajectory after that. So, you know, this, this period of time has a lot of um, chaos in it. And that's one of the ways I think that it, that May Day feels like a very contemporary story to me. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I've been rereading it this week and, you know, uh, just thinking as we look at what's happening in Louisville or in um, our own government declaring Portland and New York City and Seattle anarchist jurisdictions. You know, we don't have people mailing anarchist bombs to, uh, you know, to 30 people at the same time. So it's a little, it's a, the, you know, the analogy isn't perfect, but the energies, the chaos feels very similar. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's, and it is, we have debates now, or we have criticism of the government calling out federal forces at the time it was quite common for strikes labor strikes uh for the national guard or the u.s army to be called out against uh labor unions and picketing and it's only in the 1930s that sort of the right for collective bargaining and the right to strike is established uh in the new during the new deal it is really fascinating history unfortunately we could we could go on forever but i do think we've uh probably uh, taken May Day into November at this point. But, uh, <laughs> but um, before we leave, we just want to uh, reach back into the magic box oh, and wait, see. Wait, wait, we have oh. to rate too. Don't oh, we? oh yeah. Like, we, we have our rating. And how could, I, how could I forget we have to rate the story on, uh, on the scale of Zeldas? So what would you give oh. May Day? Oh, 10 Zeldas. Yes. 10 Zeldas. 10 Zeldas. Uh, like I said, this is absolutely one of the uh, top 10, 
I would argue one of the top five, maybe even number two or three. Uh, yes. I, 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 I just think this story is, is so atypically Fitzgerald in the panorama of it, but um, it's just perfectly executed in the way that it captures this uh, single day in American history. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's just, it's just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Yep. All right. So let's see. (laughs) Well, we're going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous then. Uh, Our next story will be 1924's Gretchen's 40 Winks. Yes. Um, Interesting story. Not particularly politically correct in the Me Too era, but we'll have a lot to talk about. It was a story he did collect, though, in uh, All the Sad Young Men. So it has some merit to him. So we will um, talk to you again in about three weeks. Robert, congratulations again on uh, the Library of America edition of Hemingway. Oh, thank and, you. Um, just remember, folks, if you want to keep updates with the Fitzgerald Society, we are on Facebook and uh, we are in the process of updating our website at www.fscottfitzgeraldsociety.org. So until... Um, until we see each other again, Comrade Trogdon. Uh, yours in the revolution, Comrade Gernot. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Power to the people. <laughs>